Hello again, it's Alice. Do you know where the expression pushing the envelope comes from? It does not refer to the thing you stick a note in and take to the mailbox. Where would you be pushing one of those and why? No, the expression actually comes from aeronautics, where an envelope refers to a set of performance limits, things like the maximum speed of a plane or the maximum weight or altitude that the aircraft has been built to withstand, but no more. Pushing that envelope makes a lot more sense. So why am I starting the episode with this little language lesson? Well, when I tell you that today we have two envelope pushers, I'm not just tossing off a cliché. I want you to think about space and movement and the physical boundaries that our featured guests have stretched to the limits and then gone beyond. I often say the only thing I fear more than change is no change, Uh, that the business of being static makes me nuts. Twyla Tharp is one of the best-known choreographers and dancers in, well, ever. The person who tore down the walls between ballet and modern dance and Broadway and movies and is still at it six decades later as she turns 80 on July 1st. I have to be feeling that each thing that I've learned, uh, I can push to another point next time. I'm not very good with repetition. Uh, I would rather not work than feel that repetition is the order of the day. Uh, And consequently, I think that the challenge is always in taking with you what you understand, but pushing it to another point. I don't believe in rupturing and dropping it off and saying, hey, this is done and over with. That, to me, that form of rebellion doesn't make sense. I've always attempted to familiarize myself with the traditions. Uh, and consider that a responsibility of the artist. I think that it's a bit facile to just go in uh, as the avant-garde traditionally is expected to do and just chop off the past and say, okay, now we start. I go, okay, fine. Seems a little wasteful to me. Let's take what we got and let's push it somewhere and let's use it because why waste all those good lessons about how the body moves? We don't have 300 years. The classical ballet has been working that long, learning lessons of the body. Let's hurry up and get that together so we can go on with it. It's an evolutionary art form, so it's always progressing and it's always changing. That is Justin Peck. He is the choreographer in residence for the New York City Ballet. And it's important for it to continue that way, otherwise it will become stale and irrelevant. When Justin Peck was born, Twyla Tharp was already almost 50, deep into her dance revolution. But every generation gets their chance to push the envelope in new directions, and Justin Peck has picked up the mantle. A mantle, by the way, is a cape, but we'll save that for another episode. Peck continues the work of making dance new and exciting and embraceable. He's 33 now and is pretty much the it boy of choreography, with a Tony Award for the Broadway revival of Carousel and a large repertoire of new ballets. He is also the brave and innovative soul who choreographed Steven Spielberg's remake of West Side Story, which comes out in December. I mean, it took me a few months to really commit to doing it. I think because there's so many ghosts in that show, and it's it's arguably the greatest musical ever made. 
It's hard to catch these two exuberant dancers standing still, but we got them to just long enough to talk about their lives, their bodies, and the hard work of breaking boundaries. On this episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm your host, Alice Winkler. Adame, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. 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 My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. When Twyla Tharp sat down for an interview with the Academy of Achievement in 1993, she was three decades into her career. But another 10 years would pass before she created Movin' Out, the hit Broadway show set to music by Billy Joel that would earn her not only a Tony Award, but also the heart of young Justin Peck, who watched it again and again and again. He'll tell you about that himself in the second half of this episode. First, to Twyla Tharp. Twyla Tharp speaks like she dances, with intensity and urgency and speed. It's how, I suppose, she's created over 160 wildly innovative works. As she explained to Gail Eichenthal in their conversation, much of the credit and the blame goes to her mother. She had very specific ideas about education, which was you should know everything about everything. It was quite simple. The family lived in a small town in Indiana when she was born, but then moved to California. Her mother's ambitions for her were large. I began ear training when I was about six months old. My mother was a concert pianist, uh, and she started all of her children uh, with music before they were a year old. Uh, and then she began to see that I had a musical gift uh, and that I should be tutored outside the house because she didn't want it to become too much uh, an amateur situation. She wanted it to be objectified. So uh, I started formal piano training when I was four, uh, and from there I had little violas and I had uh, dancing lessons of every sort and description and painting lessons in German. wasn't taught in the high school, so I had German and shorthand in case I ever needed to be a secretary, or if I didn't need to be a secretary, at least when I went to college I would be able to take all my lectures down and then go back and see what the professor had said. That's the downside of my mother's education because she made no selections and she made it seem as though one had a lifetime to do that. That's not true. A young person has to start making decisions for themselves at a much earlier age than an overbearing parent allows one. When Twyla Tharp wasn't in school or in a viola, painting, German, shorthand, or dancing lesson, she had to work at the drive-in movie theater her parents owned. From the time she was eight until she went off to college. Either selling tickets or working in the snack bar. Weekends, evenings. So there was no social life. And what about school? How was she able to handle that 
given all the other demands. Well, it was necessary I would be valedictorian. I was valedictorian. Uh, did I enjoy going to school? I hated it. Uh, I hated the, uh, the pressure of the situation because I had to excel. Uh, it wasn't a choice on my part. It was, it was expected. And yet, there is no arguing that she did have the success her mother dreamed for her. It has its upsides, it has its downsides. I think that anyone who's pushed to do the very best that they can is privileged. Uh, it, it, it is indeed, it's a luxury, whether one's coming from a poor family, a wealthy family, uh, that kind of attention is a privilege. On the other hand, uh, the necessity to constantly turn in an excellent performance, to be absolutely rutted uh, and wedded to this dedication and this ideal means that as a child, you, you're forced to learn to block out emotions. Uh, and I think this is the case with a lot of overachievers. Uh, and it's not only very painful in a personal life for many, many overachievers, uh, but it also called overachievers. I don't believe in that concept. There's achieving or not achieving, but in any case, so-called overachievers. Uh, pay for it personally and as important in the case of their work, which is where they've vested so much of their their life force, they short-circuit that as well because they don't know how to be able to integrate the, uh, the sense of so many things that are very real and that are very tangible. It's just that we don't study things like fear. We don't study things like excitement. We don't study things like love. We don't study things like mourning. We try as people who have commitments and obligations to blockade those and go our course towards excellence, uh, and that's a lie. In other words, her artistic life has come at a cost. I definitely paid a price. I, everyone pays a price. Everything is an exchange. And once you realize that, you uh, feel uh, empowered because you say, okay, this is what it's going to cost. Do I want to do that? And you say, no, I don't want to go quite that far again. In other words, uh, this spring passed. I was already committed to making two pieces, which I needed to do in a very short period of time. Uh, and uh, I had a major emotional shift in my life. I was not able to take the time to address that because I was committed in a way. Uh, and it has been very costly to me personally. I'll never be in that position again. I It was too costly, and uh, in the future I will make certain that I commit to projects so that there's enough breathing space for me to have an emotional life. And if I need to have a day or two to mourn, I can afford to feel I can take that. You talked about your mother's ambition for you. Did you feel destined to be a leader? You had to do something great or something important? Absolutely. I thought I had to make an impact on history. It was quite simple. I had to become the greatest choreographer of my time. That was, that was my, my mission, uh, and that's what I set out to do. Uh, and whether or not that's been accomplished, at least I have the common sense to know we don't determine those things. Posterity deals with us however it sees fit. But uh, I certainly gave it 20 years of my best shot. You've once said that dancing uh, is when you feel most alive. I think that... When I'm in the studio, when I'm warm, uh, when I'm uh, what people call improvising, but what I call futzing, because improvisation seems like such a, uh, 
somehow institutionalized word and what I do is completely the opposite of institutionalized. It's the messiest thing you can imagine. That when I'm in a certain state uh, where the cerebral powers are turned off and the body just goes according to directive that I know not of, it's at those times, I feel the most right. I don't want to become too mystic about this, but things feel as though they're in the best order at that particular moment. Uh, and it's a short period. Uh, it goes only at maximum an hour, uh, and I pay a very great price to be able to maintain that. But it is that hour that I, I use the same phrase over and over again that tells me who I am. Twyla Tharp studied art history during her college years, but she was at Barnard in New York City, and so made the most of all the dance education she could find off campus. She studied at the American Ballet Theater School. She studied with Martha Graham, Merce Cunningham, Paul Taylor, and the other luminaries of modern dance at the time. By the time she finished her art history degree, there was no question she wanted to make her life in dance. It's very difficult to justify a profession as a dancer because it's very difficult to earn a living, because there's very little continuity, and because just when you arrive at the apex uh, of your uh, skills, it's time to retire. And consequently, it seemed like a perhaps not wise investment of a substantial portion of my life. But as it turned out, I decided that uh, since it was the thing that I felt I did the best, that I owed it to all that be to pursue it, uh, and that that was what I had to do, whether it meant I was going to be able to earn a living or not. For a number of years, she did not earn a living at dance. It just so happened there was no market whatsoever for my strength, uh, unless I was interested in becoming a show dancer, for which I tried, but I'm not tall enough. Uh, also, uh, when I auditioned for the Radio City Rockettes, they said, we love your fuetes, but can't you smile? Uh, and things of that nature transpired between me and a commercial future. So uh, I managed to find a way of subsisting in the beginning by doing odd jobs, Kelly Girl, temp work, uh, selling perfume at Macy's, uh, and uh, any and everything to be able to sustain studying and beginning a career with a group of dancers who were willing to devote five years, really, of their lives to me, working very seriously with complete commitment for not a penny. This is not a pleasant route for many young people to consider, I would imagine, uh, and either you have to be hopelessly passionate, I guess is the word that gets devoted here, or very stupid, uh, and none of us were very stupid. We were all college graduates, actually, but we all believed that we could make an impact on something that was very important to us, which was dancing and the future of dancing and what uh, could be accomplished, uh, and we determined we would do that. There were five people initially in Twyla Tharp's company, including herself, all women, and they were almost like scientists, she says, experimenting in the lab. This is true. We thought that there were certain possibilities uh, in terms of physical movement, in terms of community, 
and in terms of what dance could address in our society. And those were the issues that we went after. Uh, and uh, we worked uh, with a great deal of rigor, uh, which is to say we were very, very uh, dedicated. We worked six days a week. Uh, we worked at least six hours every day. Uh, we did not perform much at all. It was really about the experience of learning and exploring and growing for five years. And why only women? Well, in those days, male dancers, as they are still today, uh, are uh, a rarer breed than women. Uh, and a good male dancer, a male dancer, frankly, as strong as we were, was very difficult to come by if you couldn't afford to pay them because there was work for them that was available in all the major companies. Uh, that's what we said. The truth of the matter is we didn't want them. Uh, Martha Graham also began her first company as all women. Uh, and I think it's because... In modern dance, the female force has always been a very potent one. Uh, modern dance in this country, in any case, is genuinely, gen generally laid at the doorstep of female creators. Isadora Duncan, Ruth St. Dennis, Martha Graham, Doris Humphrey. Uh, and that the next generation were men, but spun off from that generation. Eric Hawkins, Maurice Cunningham, Paul Taylor, all came from the women. Uh, and because uh, it was a primarily female force, uh, I decided that we should not, in a way, pollute the experiment. Uh, it's like mixed tennis. It's a different game. Male tennis, let's be honest, men and women are very different athletes. Uh, and frankly, I didn't want to deal with the male potential. I wanted to deal with the female potential, plus which obviously men and women bond very differently. Uh, and at that time, we wanted to begin very simply. We used no costumes, we used no music, we had no partnering. We wanted just to explore movement in time and space. And in order to keep that experiment, as you've called it, which I think is accurate, pure, we determined that it should be sexually oriented only as women. And then after five years, the first man was introduced. Uh, and bit by bit, uh, I came to be much more interested in technical matters like partnering and so forth until it's been become fully integrated. But our partnering, for example, evolved in an entirely different way than it would have had we had men from the beginning because we had to develop a strength, not only physically but emotionally, that is very different from how most women are when they're partnered. So, uh, I mean, I do weight training and have for quite a while, uh, and I'm much stronger than most women. Uh, consequently, when I work with a man or when I'm partnered by a man, I can do things no other women can do, just in terms of counterbalances and how I support myself against him, and we can actually go into kinds of movement that haven't been available before, simply because I've strengthened myself as a woman, not because I've weakened him. If you were trying to describe to someone who's, like, let's say, never seen modern dance, what makes it so exciting for you? What makes it worthy of your utter intense devotion? Well, first of all, I would have to challenge the term modern dance. I don't really use that in relation to my work. Uh, I simply think of it as dancing. I think of it as moving. I think of it as involving as much, at least as much, of a ballet technique as a so-called traditional modern dance technique. So uh, I think that uh, that was a lot of the issue, was evolving a technique that we felt we owned. Uh, we went back to beginning building blocks. We went back to very simple things like walking, running, skipping things that belong to everybody that are not called modern dance, that are not claimed by the ballet. Uh, and then from there, we began to see certain parallels. And then it was no big deal to, as we say, goose it up a notch. I mean, we could kick it up back to where the stylization had been because we knew where it came from. But we took nothing for granted in the beginning.
Was there someone who gave you a, a big break? Yes. Uh, I would say that for the first five years, I pretty much seized things. Uh, but Bob Joffrey uh, saw a piece called The Bix Pieces at the Delacorte in 1971-ish. Bob, or Robert Joffrey, was the founder of the Joffrey Ballet. And Bix, in The Bix Pieces, refers to the great jazz composer and player Bix Beiderbecke. And Bob decided from that piece, he had the breadth of vision that allowed him to see that what I was doing could be translated to what his dancers understood. Well, I already knew this because I had been studying classical ballet for a long time, but a lot of people insisted again on a wall, walls I'm beginning to think are very unhealthy things, between modern dance and ballet, and that this, this gulf should be between the two, and that the two disciplines were totally separate, and if you did one, you couldn't do the other. But Bob saw that what I did had a very strong balletic base to it, uh, and he asked me to make a piece for his company. That took a real uh, leap of faith on his part. Uh, and is what's ordinarily called a break because it certainly is what introduced me into the commercial world. From there, I made another piece for the Joffrey called As Time Goes By, and after that I did Push Comes to Shove for Ballet Theater with Baryshnikov. From Push, Milos Forman saw that piece and asked me if I would do hair. From hair, I was able to begin working in pictures and... The list goes on. Broadway, television, movies, ballet. She chipped away at the walls over and over. At times, she staged ballets outside of conventional venues. At times, she put ballerinas in sneakers. At times, she worked with rock and roll icons. Our interviewer, Gail Eichenthal, asked Twyla Tharp what she thought about Pablo Picasso's quote that you have to learn the rules like a pro so you can break them like an artist. Well, yes, uh, I think that there's something a little perverse about that. Uh, there's, I mean, in and of itself, breaking rules is not an art. Uh, that's simply an extension of and a challenge of what the traditions are. You have to create something either with the rules or without the rules. But simply breaking the rules, which I've done my fair share of, is not all that creative. One of the pieces Twyla Thurp referred to a moment ago was called Deuce Coupe which premiered in 1973 and is often written about as the first ever crossover ballet. It featured music by the Beach Boys. Twyla Tharp's company and the Joffrey Ballet joined forces to perform it, and it became a huge hit. Twyla Tharp says she carefully observed the Joffrey company and the Joffrey's audience for a season before she made the piece, and she tailored it specifically for them. On the other hand, it is extremely arrogant and very foolish to think that you can ever outwit your audience. And all you can do is make your sincerest stab at saying, hey, I think you could understand what I'm trying to say if I say it this way. I think I know you well enough that this is how I need to say it for you. I don't consider that selling out. I consider that going halfway to meet a person, and I consider that to be what communications is all about. Duskoop was very successful in that regard. As far as watching, I was in it. So I was too busy hopping around backstage to have any sense about what it was doing to the audience out front. I was having too much fun. You also elevated pop music um, by creating a piece around the Beach Boys. That's one way of putting it. Uh, again, I'm not one who 
divides music, dance, or art into various categories. Uh, either something works or it doesn't. Uh, I don't really think of, uh, and I don't mean this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I don't really think of pop art and serious art as being that far apart. That is a total lie. I think of them as being completely different, and I don't think of them as being that far apart. And this is one of the things that we have to accept about art is that it's full of paradoxes and contradictions, and they're equally true. Both sides. <laughs> Not long after Deuce Coop came another piece, which Twyla Tharp briefly mentioned, Push Comes to Shove. It was the first piece she created that she danced with Mikhail Baryshnikov at the American Ballet Theater, but not the last. They went on to collaborate many times over the years. Push Comes to Shove juxtaposed classical music and ragtime, and it further cemented her reputation as a visionary in the world of dance. I'd like to have a few words about Push Comes to Shove. Um, at the beginning of your career, you concentrated on female form and female choreography, and then later came a very intense and productive relationship with Baryshnikov, um, obviously a male dancer who inspired you. Misha's a great dancer, uh, but it's also, I think, going to be true that the 20th century is, is the domain in the classical ballet uh, of the, the classical male dancer in a way that it was never before. It was always about the ballerina, uh, and part of that is because the choreographers were always men. Consequently, they shaped the roles for women as they wished them to be. Uh, when I started choreographing for classical ballet companies, there had been before me two women who had ever made a ballet on a classical company. Uh, and so, of course, I'm interested in the male dancer, plus which uh, not only Misha, but Rudy was a virtuoso, Valela. Uh, 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 there are these days uh, young men dancing who have a power and a potency that we respond to because of athletics. We're trained, unfortunately, and indoctrinated in the facts that the, the male physicality can be marketed in a way the female cannot. Consequently, you have the multi-million dollar athletes in the male world and practically none in the female. Uh, and this has had an impact in the dance world. Uh, and the stars there in the classical world these days are men. And I was fortunate to love men, so I could put them on stage and make roles for them and move through their bodies in a way that they enjoyed doing uh, and that they responded to, as the ballerinas have to male choreographers for centuries. Listening to you talk, um, you're so serious about your art and it has taken such a tremendous amount of devotion and passion and, and development of time. And yet, one of the things that I am most touched by in your work is the humor and wit. Any comic is a tragic soul. Comedy is one of the things that allows one to survive. It's one of the things that allows one, particularly if one has been in the process of separating off the emotions, it's one place you can process them because you can, I mean, it's why so many humorists are black, uh, why it's, they can look at disaster and tragedy with that kind of overview and skew it and twist it and can't sincerely and directly talk about emotion. 
Uh, and I think that there's been an element of that in the work. It's also true that comedy is something that allows an audience to engage in art. It, it, it welcomes them in. It allows them to think they can connect with it. And that's always been very important to me. I have not wanted to intimidate audiences. I have not wanted my dancing to be of an elitist form. That doesn't mean I haven't wanted it to be excellent and absolutely everything that could be accomplished. I just have not wanted it to be elitist. Uh, and I learned very early that an audience would relax and would look at things differently if they felt they could laugh with you from time to time. It became a more human thing, and I encourage that. Plus, which there's an energy, and dancing, after all, is about energy that comes through the release of tension that is laughter. Besides which, it's, I don't know, there's something that sparkles in humor in a way that nothing else does. Uh, and I'm always very, very pleased to see that element when it just comes and it just out. As I mentioned earlier, Twyla Tharp is turning 80. And if you saw her recently on the PBS series American Masters, you'd have seen that she's still strong as all get out. She still dances around the living room, or futzes to use her word, like a five-year-old child, totally free. She still moves her body wildly and also with utter purpose. Gail Eichenthal's final question to Twyla Tharp 20 years ago seems even more relevant today. What turns you on so much about dance? It's not about being turned on. It's about being not turned off. Uh, I think that it's something everybody, not just dancers, everybody has to do on a daily basis or else they're going to be in trouble because uh, not only are they physically out of shape, which most people are, uh, but they don't know how to gauge their foundation. They don't know their bottom line. That comes from physical work. Uh, and I don't think politicians should be allowed into power who are not familiar with their bodies because that's where a bottom line is. And I know that they would make totally different decisions if they felt responsible simply for their own bodies for example. I think that anybody who wants to challenge their mind to operate, any artist, any writer, any economist, any entrepreneur who wants their mind to function at a peak knows they have to work physically at something, whatever, on a daily basis. It is a necessary part of the human uh, uh, machine. We're a machine and we have to be worked in the same way we have to be fed. So it's not a question of being turned on, it's a question of respecting a necessity. I love Twyla Tharp. She's, she's a personal hero of mine. We turn now to Justin Peck. When I was a student at the School of American Ballet, I used to uh, sneak into the second act of moving out frequently, every few weeks, actually. This was before I could really afford Broadway tickets. And I just couldn't get enough of it. And just like the, f the way she's been able to cultivate her own dance style, and she's been a real defining force for dance and for ballet as an art form over decades. And she's, she's, I think what I really love about her is she doesn't stand still, like I was talking about earlier, about the form must be constantly changing and evolving. Um, so she's really good at kind of reinventing herself as an artist. And I love that about her as well. And she's, she's also just like her work ethic is unbelievable. It's really inspiring. 
Justin Peck, very much like Twyla Tharp, seamlessly blends dance forms. In his hands, tap and ballet can merge into one. Like Tharp, he's taken dancers out of their ballet shoes and into their sneakers. But of course, he is pushing a different envelope for a different generation, taking dancers out of the theater altogether, choreographing works for the street or for a subway station, creating dance steps out of everyday experiences, and works that respond to current political and social discourse. Justin Peck grew up in Encinitas, California, which he describes as a sleepy beach town, at least when he was growing up there in the 1990s. His mom was from Argentina and his dad from New York City. And as he proudly told Mary Jordan during this interview several weeks ago, his grandfather was civil rights activist James Peck, one of the first freedom writers in Mississippi. His grandmother was Paula Peck, a well-regarded cookbook author. Justin Peck feels that their sensibilities have been passed down through the generations and course through him. When he was growing up in California, Peck's father would take the whole family to New York City, where they'd spend a week soaking in art and seeing as many plays as they could pack in. That's where, he says, he first began to understand the power of the performing arts, how they could affect people, educate people, change people. They changed him for sure. I would say like the one show that really left a major impression on me was Bring in the Noise, Bring in the Funk, um, the tap dance musical review um, by Savion Glover and George C. Wolfe. And that was my first exposure to tap dance as an art form. And I was just like immediately so blown away. It was one of those pivotal moments in my life where I was like, I don't quite understand what this expression is. It feels like a combination of dance and music as expressed through the body. And I really loved that balance. That was sort of my way into learning how to tap dance, learning other forms of dance. So you started taking um, dance classes. You were a young teenager, right? You were like 13. When did you start really taking formal? Well, I started with tap dance and with musical theater when I was around nine. And I studied that pretty seriously for a while. And I didn't, I sort of stayed away from ballet for a long time. I, I didn't like, I found it to be really very rigid and not as, not as much fun, not as much freedom in it. And um, I think that was partially due to like the fact that I didn't find the right teacher to bring me into that until, and also I didn't have the right sort of examples in front of me. San Diego's not a huge dance town. There's not a lot of dance happening there. Um, and especially in the ways of ballet. And so I felt like I never really had a role model until I saw a performance of American Ballet Theater. They happened to be touring through San Diego randomly. Like, I th I'm not sure they've even been back to tour through there since this moment. Um, but it was when I was 13 and I saw them perform Giselle and I was just so blown away by some of these male dancers and the kind of balancing act between artistry and athleticism that they embodied. And 
that was another turning point for me. That was like another very critical moment in my life where I could almost like point to a singular day and say like, I had this experience and now I'm going to like throw myself fully in this direction. What does that look like? So you're in school. So is it after school for how long? How many hours? I would take as many ballet classes in the day and in the week possible on that. Sometimes that meant studying at multiple dance schools there. You know, if one school didn't offer enough, I would, you know, I would be like, luckily my parents were really supportive of this. So they would drive me from one studio to another studio. And until I was invited to come to the School of American Ballet in New York City. How old were you? I was 15. 15 and in possession of a golden ticket to New York, to the arts, and to a life at Lincoln Center, studying with the greatest male dancers in the New York City Ballet. And what was so incredible about that experience being led by them was I would come in in the mornings and take classes from them, and then the school has a great program where they give the students tickets to the ballet every night, so I would you know, walk across the plaza to see the performance that evening. And I would see Peter Bull, Jacques Soto, Nikolai Hube performing that night. So what do you think was a key thing that you learned during those years? You know, you're 15 and 16. Hmm. Um, something a teacher said to you or something that you kind of absorbed in that critical moment. That's a really good question. I think like, for me, what I, what I felt like I took away from that time was that there are no shortcuts. You know, there's no corner cutting. There has to be full devotion to every single detail, every single tendu, every single plie, uh, every single jump, every single turn. There's a kind of like excellency that's expected from that. And that comes from the craft and from the, you know, the 10,000 hours that you have to put in in order to really master that. You know, you're only 33 now, and boy, we have a lot of stuff to talk about between, you know, working with Spielberg and doing Carousel, and, um, you know, there's you've been called the boy wonder who's upturning ballet, and but let us go back still about in the teenage years. How quickly were you told you are special? This is a a once-in-a-generation or once-in-a a lifetime gift you have? Oh, I don't, I don't think I ever felt that when I was a teenager. I think I felt that throwing myself into, the, into ballet and training in the form of ballet was a, a massive game of catch-up. And even my invitation to come to the School of American Ballet, I was the last student asked from the summer program, which is sort of like how the the year-round program selects their students to enter the um, the winter term training program, and so for me it was like I was sort of hanging on by a thread from that point. And I came to New York um, for the year-round program, and suddenly I went from being the only boy in ballet class back in California to okay, now there's 20 others who are better than me, and I think that game of catch-up really lasted all the way through I mean I I felt that all the way through my entire ballet career where I don't know I just felt like I had to work twice as hard to 
um, to get there. And I never really felt like a standout with the company. I think I, I was invited into the company for certain skills that they needed and, you know, certain luck and certain timing that I, I just sort of like hit at the right moment. I was a natural partner. Um, so a lot of the ballerinas liked dancing with me. And that was sort of like a way that I was able to um, leverage a spot into New York City Ballet. I think, you know, the, um, the director at the time took notice of that. And there's so much um, repertoire that requires complicated, challenging partnering. And so, so that was one way I was able to get into the company. Tell, talk about that. What makes a good partner as a dancer and what doesn't make a good partner? <laughs> Partnering is like the act of dancing with another person and oftentimes supporting that other person. So it requires a level of care towards another. And then just like physically it involves a lot of upper body strength and um, and use of like counterbalance and use of of coordination um, in relation to that other body you're dancing with in order to achieve certain shapes or certain movements. And I just got really interested in the act of dancing with another person. Like I, I loved it and I loved maybe the, the dance language, the kind of like exchange, the wordless exchange that existed between two people while in movement. So let's talk about the ways that you're trying to bring it to a wider audience. Um, you know, you, you have, when you've, choreographed things, you choreograph them in the subway. They don't have to be on a stage. You, you don't have to wear um, ballet slippers. You can wear regular old sneakers. But what do you, what, tell us more about how you're trying to widen the appeal for this art that you love. I find my way into that from a much more personal place. Like I, I feel like my process is never like, okay, how do I reach like the widest audience possible? It's always it always comes from like a more granular process. For example, there's a ballet I choreographed called The Times Are Racing, uh, which is a ballet that is set in sneakers. And we created a short film where um, the dance uh, carves through a New York City subway uh, station. And with something like that, um, the process for me started uh, with the music. For me, it always starts with, okay, what music am I wanting to explore? Um, and that was a challenging piece of music. It's a, a kind of soundscape uh, combination of acoustic and electronic instrumentation by a composer named Dan Deacon. And I had been wanting to choreograph it for like five years. And I finally worked up the courage to take it on at New York City Ballet. and. Um, and the music really led me to a, a place where I was like, okay, I want to set this in sneakers. There's something about it that feels like it wants a kind of like a American sort of like folk character dance vibe to it. And it felt so current. Um, and so I wanted the 
the movement to uh, reflect that. Not, you know, I wanted to stand up right there alongside the music. Um, and a lot of the emotions explored uh, in that piece have to do with protest and activism and the political landscape at the time while we were making that. And yet it is still quote unquote abstract. It's an abstract dance that when people come to see it, depending on who they are and what they're feeling that day and what their whole upbringing is and, you know, what kind of energy they're bringing into the space, they're going to be able to have their own interpretation of what that work is. Um, and so I'm happy that it affects people and that, that it reaches a broader audience and it might interest younger people or it might interest, you know, people who wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily think that they were interested in ballet, but, um, but it really comes from a personal place of like taste and intention for myself. Yeah. You said that your art starts with music. So how many hours a day do you listen to music? Um, hours a day. As, as much as I can. I mean, I think it ranges depending on the day and what I have to do in terms of like being in rehearsals or not. But I would say like, I will listen to a piece of music hundreds, if not thousands of times before. Usually before I'll choreograph it. You, um, you mean like, the same piece of music? Yeah, the same hundreds, piece of music. Hundreds, yep. if not thousands of times, you listen to the same piece of music. What's going on in your head after the 500th um, time? <laughs> I think I'm trying to like reach a place where I'm entirely, not, not just familiar with it, but like I know it inside and out. And once I, I have that, um, outlook on the piece of music, I can start to build out like my own creative uh, blueprint for how I want the dance to come to life in physical space. What are you most proud of so far? Oh, that's a hard question. I feel like it's it's usually whatever I'm working on at the time, like the next thing, because it's all about how the process evolves. So I feel like there's an evolution to, not that it's always like in like an ascending direction, but I do think that there's like an, a, a, a progression forward as an artist and, it, and for the art form, like a progression forward for the art form. And so I think I'm most interested in and most proud of what it is I'm making at the time. This is the prologue from the soundtrack for the original movie, West Side Story. I can't play you the updated version from the Steven Spielberg remake because it's not out yet. But what a project with a script by the brilliant Tony Kushner. If you had any doubt about Justin Peck's stature in the world of dance, his invitation to choreograph this film should put it to rest. Isn't it daunting? I mean, that that was a 1950s Broadway show that became one of the biggest movies, right? 1961, West Side Story. Everyone saw it. People could sing those songs and, and dance those dances, and, and it made everybody 
in the cast star. And so the remake, to remake something that was so well received, was that daunting to you? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a huge influence on me uh, and, and what inspired me to become a dancer and, uh, and to take interest in theater and, and choreography. Um, so it was very daunting to agree to do it. Um, but I think like at the end of the day, it was, it's such an incredible team of artists and humans coming together to do something. I couldn't say no to that opportunity. And, uh, and also I felt like I feel very connected to the work of Jerome Robbins. I danced a lot of his work at New York City Ballet. Um, we do a West Side Story suite at New York City Ballet, and it was one of the first principal roles I got to dance um, when I first joined the company. And so I knew the original choreography inside and out. And I was able to really like pay tribute to it and also update it in a way that felt like the story we were telling uh, demanded. So, um, Is there something you can tell those listening to watch out for about an update on it? that you're particularly I, I'll just, kind of happy about? I mean, I, I will say that there's, there's a, a huge amount of dance um, that runs through this version as well. And what's interesting about this version is we are able to um, look back on the time period when West Side Story was created and, um, and tell a story that speaks to what was happening at the time in New York, at this particular corner of Manhattan, and how that's led to where we are today. Um, and with the original West Side Story, they weren't really able to do that because it took place in the present. You know, it was, it premiered, the, the Broadway show premiered in 1957, and it, that's the time period where it really like took place. So I think that there is an ability to reflect back on everything that was happening at the time uh, through our version. I've been on set and watched Spielberg um, when he's directing, and there'll be some amazing scene that to everybody else looked like it was perfect, mm. but one thing wasn't right, and he makes them redo it and redo it and redo it. And you know, I'm wondering for dance, um, you know, when you go out on a stage, I, it's like there's always one tiny thing that must be off, but it's a live performance, and probably nobody saw it. So how, how did, I mean, was it take after take? Were there more takes when you're doing it for a movie? I, I would say that really depends on the director and the amount of preparation going into it. Those are two big factors from my, from my experience that I've noticed. Um, you know, with... West Side Soaring with Steven, uh, we actually didn't do that many takes. I think that they were very devoted to preparing the cast so much so that once they got onto set and we had the, sh the shot set up, they were able to execute on a level that was very high and I think left little room for error from the dance side of things. The other thing I'll say is that like, Steven was really a generous collaborator with me and he didn't have to be. And I think um, he, he really invited me into his own process and into a kind of like shared process of building out 
what this world and what this environment of the film was going to be. And for me, I was so grateful for that because it not only made the experience uh, extraordinary, but it was also like a masterclass in filmmaking. I was able to sit side by side with him every day on set and watch him work and also contribute in my own way and collaborate with him. And that was invaluable and really special, I think, for me as I continue to try and learn and grow as an artist in my own right. You, you said this interesting thing about dance. You said it's a rare moment when you are in the present when you're dancing, right? Mm. You're not worrying about the past or thinking about the future, but you're right there mm. moving. Mm. I mean, there's so much focus and almost like primal instinct that comes into play when a dancer is performing in real time in relation to music. And there's nothing like feeling it and there's nothing like witnessing it. When you're on stage as a dancer mm. and you really have a great night, what does that feel like? Oh, it's the best. I mean, it's, it's the greatest feeling ever. It's a rare feeling because it's such a perfectionist art form that it's so easy to, um, after a performance, to look at, kind of like single out the flaws or, or the little missteps. Or I've had experiences where I've felt like I've made a mistake in a performance and I've been devastated by it. And a few days later, I'll see like a videotape recording of the performance and there's it looks like nothing it looks like no one would be able to notice that kind of thing um, but that's just how heightened the feeling of performing is um, and and but every once in a while there are those moments where you know you hit a stride just right and it feels like you're flying it's the best feeling ever flying also pretty well describes what it looks like when you're watching justin peck dance or watching the dancers perform the works he's choreographed. He is known as a hyper-athletic dancer, similar to the ones Twyla Tharp was so drawn to in an earlier era of ballet, and his own works can be demanding, speed, height, intensity. Well, I've always thought about myself as being a dancer first, and still, even though I'm technically um, off the roster at New York City Ballet, I feel that I am at heart a dancer and I try to approach all my rehearsals and my processes with a sense of uh, empathy and understanding for what that means and um, and I I bring a real I try to bring a real sensitivity to um, honing in on what a dancer is feeling in the day-to-day um, so that they can maintain their endurance and their health moving forward through their careers and so that there's no devastation that comes from being in a rehearsal room on one of my ballets and of course injuries are unavoidable in ballet and in dance because it's so um, can be very unpredictable and um, and it requires the body to move in ways that are not natural to uh, to an everyday human being so that comes with its own level of risk. Um, but yeah, we, we do our best. And I'm proud actually to report that during the entire filming process of West Side Story, not one person got injured. Wow. Which was amazing. It was 
a, a miracle in its own right. <laughs> you know, I've heard ballet so often described, you know, it's, oh, it's perfection. It's perfection of form. Um, and then sometimes you hear a musical as electrifying. You know, h- how do you want people when they're watching, let's say, West Side Story? What, what do, you, do you want them to feel electricity? Do you want them to see perfection? What, what, what is it? I don't want anyone to see perfection. I feel like, I would say ballet is strive, the strive for perfection. I would say it's not really something that's a, attainable. But what keeps us going is the pursuit of that. And I found through my experience as a dancer and then subsequently as a choreographer that um, the more interesting thing about it are the moments, the like idiosyncratic moments. That's where the, uh, the real kind of humanity comes out. And that's why we don't want to watch like robots dancing or like computer generated images of dance like it's 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 the kind of slight imperfections that we all have that give the dance expression character and i think like when people see my work or people see you know the dancers in my work or people see the west side story movie i want them to to be able to connect to that quality and to see the humanity and the 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 emotional expression i want them to feel something is there some legacy that you would like you know i mean you're so young so you have five decades ahead of you but when it's all over would you like people to say what oh man god i yeah that's a hard question to answer. I mean, I think like for me, it's dance has been such a um, community builder. And so I guess like what I would hope people would say is that my work brought people together or that the processes I pioneered helped to create future generations of communities and allowed individuals to kind of like find others that fulfill them and so yeah I guess that's what I would hope for but yeah it's still a ways to go (laughs) choreographer dancer Justin Peck spoke to Mary Jordan for the Academy of Achievement in May of 2021 Mary has a day job as correspondent for the Washington Post. We also heard earlier, of course, from Twyla Tharp, who spoke with Gail Eichenthal. By day, Gail is a senior director at the University of Southern California Radio Group. Tremendous thanks to Twyla Tharp and Justin Peck, as well as to our interviewers. And thanks to you for listening. If you can't get enough of dance, please take a listen to our episode about prima ballerina Suzanne Farrell. And we always love your feedback, so take a minute and leave us some comments. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. What It Takes is made possible with generous funding from the Katherine B. Reynolds Foundation. See you next time.